0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. Welcome
1: to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Alex Dane, author of White Literary Taste Production in Contemporary Book Culture, published by Cambridge University Press in February 2023. In White literary, literary Taste Production in Contemporary Book Culture, Alex Dane argues that contemporary book culture is structured by practice that operates according to a white taste logic. By applying the notion of this logic to an analysis of both traditional and new media taste-making practices, this volume examines the influence of whiteness on the cultural practice and how the long-standing racial inequities that characterize Anglophone book publishing are supported by systems, institutions, and platforms. Alex Dane is a lecturer in media and communications and publishing and communications at the University of Melbourne. Alex, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into talking about uh, this book, I would love if you could share a little bit about yourself with listeners, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your research on book culture?
0: Um, Yeah, so I grew up in Melbourne, uh, in Australia. Uh, that's where I am now, and um, it's a very bookish city um, and there's sort of a lot of kind of bookish events, a lot of independent bookstores, Um, it's like a lot of cities, but it really felt like a kind of bookish city to grow up in and and to exist in. But that's not kind of why I'm interested in book culture and why I started researching book culture. Um, I think the thing that first sparked my interest in book culture was – the whole um, Oprah Winfrey, Jonathan Franzen affair. Um, I was not very old when this happened. I was still in high school, but um, I, I don't know if everyone remembers this, but uh, Oprah wanted to feature the corrections as part of the Oprah Winfrey's book club. This was in 2001. And Jonathan Franzen was like, basically, no, thank you. These aren't my readers. This is not the kind of books I want to be alongside. And it was very gendered and really pretentious and I just became I mean I was a teenager but I just was so fascinated by this event and um it kind of made me think about taste production and systems of taste production and cultural intermediaries I didn't call them cultural intermediaries when I was 17 but that's what they were um and the way that the publishing industry and the imagined literary kind of culture are often at odds with one another so that's kind of started of my fascination with book culture as opposed to books. And I think, you know, as a kid, we all kind of read a lot. And um that's where that sort of stuck reading and book culture kind of separated in my mind around that affair. And I became really interested in it. Um, but it was a really long time between that. And when I started doing actual scholarly research into book culture, but this fascination and this event um, was the kind of starting point for me. So I did a master's of publishing and communication at the university of Melbourne, which is what I now uh, teach into, um, which is very nice. Um, and then after that, I went and did a PhD at Swinburne university in Melbourne. Um, and I started to look at the ways in which power kind of, exists and is produced and circulates in book publishing. And it really started from that kind of Franz and Oprah debacle um and moved really, really far away from that. But it's kind of stayed at that route. And I just am obsessed with that and um am obsessed with everything that Jonathan Franzen has ever publicly said about anything because I think that he is like really bad at representing him or really good at representing himself. He might he might he might be the person that he says he is, and for that I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm I'm just fascinated by that kind of the way he is in the world, and what that means in terms of like a, the way we imagine literary culture. And I think the way that he imagines literary culture. So it's like a, a bad place to start, Jonathan Franzen, obviously. But yeah, that's kind of he's this sort of figure in my mind about how book culture exists and how power and race and gender kind of exist in book culture. He's like this sort of signifier in my mind. Um, I'm not a fan of Jonathan Branson. I should probably be quite honest about it. Um, but, yeah, he kind of exists as this person in my mind. And, I um, yeah, and that's kind of how I got to w- w- the things I'm interested in now, which is, yeah, the way power kind of is produced, the way power is circulated, who has it, who has access to it, and who doesn't, you know, in book publishing.
1: That is an amazing anecdote and, like, catalyst. That's, that's a really... Um yeah. Uh kind of exciting place to start from because my brain is going off about all these other um celebrity book club misadventures that I remember. Um but turning to your recent book, could you speak a little bit about what your goals were for this book and who you hope will engage with the ideas you're sharing here?
0: Yeah, um the goals for this book was to really like turn this the focus um, in like the scholarly conversation um, about diversity and inclusion, which is like something that a lot of people are looking at, but turn it away from diversity and inclusion efforts or diversity itself. Um, obviously, um, you know, the lack of equality within book publishing is uh, a major theme of a lot of research. It's a major theme of a lot of my own research. But um, often the discussions around this in the field, kind of um, in the scholarly field especially, uh, they talk about representation a lot and 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 it sort of ends up at the point of representation. And I wanted to move away from representation because I don't think that anglophone book publishing is ready to talk about representation because I think that there are bigger problems that are being unaddressed. And by talking about representation, we are glossing over a lot of the issues that kind of exist in the roots of the system. Um, So representation is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but I don't really think that's where we are right now. Um, I don't think we're in a position to discuss that. Um, And I think that's primarily because of um, the logic that I describe in the book. Um, and And I wanted to sort of shift the gaze of my work, um, of the conversation from looking at diversity in terms of representation and look at the whiteness and what white people are doing, but also what white systems are doing Mm. and these systems and the publishing industry is built upon these like deeply colonial, um, kind of, you know, racist systems of classification of understanding of knowledge. And I wanted to talk about race in the publishing industry by talking about what whiteness is doing Um, because I'm a white person. I think that's the thing that I should be focusing on rather than other things. Um, But also because I felt that it was, especially among my white colleagues, being like like, largely unaddressed um, and and the conversation kind of was too, was pitched at at the kind of, at the wrong kind of angle and we needed to be diving in. This is just what I think, you know, diving into the actual roots of the problem.
1: Super, thank you. So yeah, you present here the argument that anglophone publishing sectors across a lot of countries operate according to the logic of white tastemaking, even in the midst of these efforts towards diversity. And in the first two chapters, you outline a few of the foundational practices that really establish whiteness in these spaces. So acquisitions, book reviewing, information systems, and more. Could you speak about how book publishing is actively defining notions of authority and legitimacy through these types of practices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So publishing is a cultural sector that's
0: actively engaged in the production and circulation of knowledges. Um, so in deciding what gets published, publishers are making decisions around what subjects are worthy of attention and which people have the authority to write about these subjects. Um so therefore, publishing not just like embodies all the structural inequalities that kind of characterize countries like the UK or Canada or Australia or the US, um, it's perpetuating these inequalities because of the fact that it's a business that is focused on circulating knowledges. Um, and you can see this, as you said, like in all of the processes like acquisitions, reviewing, book selling all those kind of things. So, um, Melanie ramdashan bolds research uh, indicates that authors of color are assumed or even expected by commissioning editors to write about uh, what she calls issues um, that relate to race or confirm, conform to particular stereotypes or narratives. Um, and this would suggest that the publishers who are overwhelmingly white uh, have a racialized understanding of what particular authors should be writing about. Um, So you see this in commissioning, um, the decision making of who writes what, what gets published, but you also see it in like the circulation stuff like book reviewing. So book reviewing is a practice that emerges from and exists in a relation to field wide understandings of what literature is. And it's kind of primary practice of book reviewing and book criticism is like, what is literature? what is good literature what is bad literature all that kind of stuff and i don't want to wade into a conversation about the value of book reviewing whether it impacts sales it, that i don't i don't particularly care about any of that um but it is a practice that is kind of doing that thing it is saying by reviewing a book good or bad it's saying like this is a piece of literature that we need to kind of engage with um so every time a book is reviewed it's reinforcing whatever system it's existing within. And I argue that that system is like racially coded Mm -hmm. and and has like deep kind of racist roots. So texts and authors who attract significant critical attention, particularly in cases where broad consensus among critics and reviewers is reached, uh, influence the field's foundational definition of what literature is. Um, as do the established critics and reviewers that form the consensus of a text or an author. So there's this constant struggle of like definition over definition over definition. And when we all kind of come together over a definition of like, what is a good book? I don't know, um, Finnegan's Wake or whatever. um, That is what we now all look to. And all the critics who have said that that's a good book are kind of them themselves, the definers. So it's these kind of practice structure, practice model. That's not very clear. I don't really know if I'm making it any clearer, but um, we're kind of always defining what is and and then by its very practice, like what isn't literature? It is, this is, therefore this isn't Um, it's binary. uh, And that's just kind of how it works. And sometimes it feels like if we look at the pages of the, I don't know, New York review of books, it's like, but there's so much in here. And it's not just yes or no, it's not this binary logic, but I think that when we kind of get down to the roots of it all, like it, if it's being talked about, it's considered worthy of discussion. Um, so Richard Jean so's research into race and the U.S. publishing sector reveals that a huge number and variety of white authors are reviewed in literary, um, the literary media in America, but the work of only a very few number of um, Black authors are reviewed. So you have this like huge diversity of white authors and then like one or two or three black authors like over the history of book reviewing in America. Um, This means that the opportunity for critical attention and to be considered within the definitional understanding of literature or good literature is really limited for black authors and authors of color, which reinforces perhaps subconsciously racialized assumptions of literary value. So all of these white authors can be reviewed because they're worthy of review, but only these very small number of black authors, because there were What's, what's that about, you know, that's, and, and just that practice existing reinforces the legitimacy of the practice. Um, it's not just reviewing, it's not just acquisitions. It's kind of something that happens in all professional and amateur book, book spaces. Um, and I think that one of the things I'm kind of keen to bring to the surface in this exploration is that this is a logic that is like deeply embedded inside of the culture. It's not something that we are always consciously acting upon. Um, and I say we are as a white person, I am part of this system who acts in these same ways. Um, and it's not very helpful for us to kind of browbeat over it. Um, but rather just to talk about it, you know, it, no one's at fault here. Uh, well, okay. Maybe, yeah, people are at fault, but like, you know, it's not helpful for us to be like, you're a bad book reviewer. You're a bad community. Like, this is, bigger than us as individuals. This is a system and we need to kind of approach it as a system and it affects every little part
1: of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, no, the systemic analysis of that is I think so important. Um, and so then there are some different efforts towards diversification of the book industry that you explore. And the first in chapter three is women's literary awards. I really liked the way you scrutinize our assumptions about the ability of literary word awards to actually do diversity work. Um, and so what did you learn about the women's prize and the Stella prize, which were both set up for that purpose? What are these prizes actually doing and how are they, or are they not redistributing power in the book industry? Um, thank you. That's a, it's a really good question because I, um, I'm also fascinated
0: by literary prizes generally, but like activist literary prizes. Um, And I think that these prizes are fascinating because they have done a really, really good job of their like original stated aim. Um, They have supported and awarded and promoted the work of white women authors. Like that's, they really have done that. Um, And I know that sounds really harsh that I am saying that it's just white people that they've helped out, but like, it's kind of true. Um, But the huge amount of effort that has gone into those, like I don't know, is, is fascinating because it really has kind of worked. Um, they have done a lot of work that has promoted. I mean, the Women's Prize in the UK, especially because of its long history, it's easier to kind of see the effects of it. But yeah, it has it, it has done good stuff for white women. It really has. Um, I this is a bit left field, but like Jen, go with me. Okay. Here, I started off with Jonathan and You thought that was the weirdest thing I was going to say today. Um, I like to think of these prizes as like the sex in the city of literary activism. Um, and I've been thinking about this kind of analogy a lot, cause I've been speaking to my, uh, undergrad students about, um, sex in the city a lot, uh, for some reason. Um, so sex in the city was a show that promoted the idea that women and men are equal And when they say equality in the show, that what they really mean is that women can adopt all of the oppressive behaviors of men. Um, And that's what equality is. You know, they can also be like these like rampant capitalists or they can also be like quite misogynistic themselves and they can sex shame other people, but that doesn't affect them. And like, so the equality in the the world of sex in the city, Carrie and the gals, is that equality means we're like our oppressor we we adopt their behaviors. Um and while sex and city is like not explicitly about race, I'm happy to have that conversation because I do have some feelings about the relationships of between like white women and women of color in Sex and the City, but that's not what we're doing today. Um it because equality in the in the universe of Sex and the City is on the these terms that are rooted in the systems and structures of white supremacy, the outcome is very white. Um for carry and the gals. Um, and this is what the Women's Prize and the Seller Prize have done. The structures themselves don't speak to or uproot or transform the ways in which power and status and hierarchy are, um, are supported in the literary prize culture. Instead, they just want to inject more women into the structure, which is why it isn't transformative and why existing power structures, so structures around race, which is so deeply rooted in this industry, um, are largely undisturbed. Um, and even if women of color are shortlisted and win the prizes, that's just the veneer, like the, the structure isn't happening because they have just kind of forced more people into the structure. And that's when we get back to those conversations about representation and not about systems. Um, a very long tangent into the world of sex in the city. And, <laughs> and for that, I apologize, but, um, I think it's like helpful for me to think through that in terms of like plugging things into existing systems doesn't in any way transform the actual systems.
1: I think that's a really fantastic illustration. Um, The other example that you give of these kind of diversity efforts uh, is the work that is or is not accomplished by anti-racist reading lists. Could you t- explain for listeners what exactly you're talking about when you refer to that kind of list? And then what have you found that these like purport to do versus what kind of impacts we actually see them having on the industry and on reader audiences?
0: Yeah. Um, this was a huge thing in like 2020 and a little bit 2021. But, um, you know, the, the anti-racist reading list was... Um, I suppose part of like the online section of um the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. And um I observed these um from Australia. Uh, so um, you know, removed from the, you know, national context of these protests, even though we were kind of doing similar things here, um, we were all so in Melbourne, we're in lockdown. So I think like for me. Not that you asked like why I came to this, but like, you know, I was, it was a very online time. And I think that because of the pandemic and because people were in lockdown and they were protesting, I think that that was part of the reason why book lists and sharing book lists was so popular at that time. You know, it was a kind of, it was a a reading time for a lot of people. It was a, but also there were a lot of conversations around, uh, quote unquote, doing the work and, who is responsible for educating it, who isn't, and what white people need to do um, to educate themselves on systemic issues of racism and inequality. Um, all of that is great, like that's fine. But the upshot is that um, a lot of people, not just white people, but I focus on white people, shared these anti-racist reading lists on Twitter and on uh, on Instagram. Also publishers did it as well, which is a whole other conversation which we can get into. Um, but uh they were like, these are the lists that you, these are the books you need to read in order to, I don't know, not be racist anymore. Um, I'm an educator, so I um, really do believe in like the power of reading things. But uh, as an educator, I only know that I know that like reading can only get us so get us so far in terms of knowledge. Um, so I think there's like something to kind of grapple with then about like what can reading do for us. But what I was really interested in is kind of not the lists as things that people are actually reading, but as kind of signifiers of our performativity and our fear as white people around getting it right or not getting it wrong or making sure we're visibly protesting in this like very innocuous, easy to digest way. Like read a list, like here's a list of books you can read. Um, I just don't really think it's doing anything. Um, Maybe people are reading them, maybe they're not. Um, Maybe it's promotional and that's a good thing, but I just think it's a really interesting example of the way that, uh, quote unquote, diversity and inclusion, you know, happens online and happens in book cultures and reading cultures among groups of white people. Because it's just a really fascinating thing. I'm not the first person to think about this, like obviously, um, but I was, I looked at these lists coming out as like just really interesting Kind of symbols of 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 our time and um and why people kind of really poorly navigating their way through when they weren't they weren't the main character I suppose or, or maybe are the main character which is the real problem but um so that's kind of where I came to on these lists um and there's as I said like there's nothing essentially wrong with these lists like that there's nothing that they are innocuous in like every in every way but my research tried to engage in what the lists were doing. So, when they were posted by white people, what what were they actually doing? What were the effects of these lists? Did they have an effect on book sales? Um, and you know, what do they tell us about the way that white readers approach books by black authors? Um, so I wanted you to understand the performative nature of these lists and how they demonstrate the way that white book culture engages with books by black authors. And what I found fascinating is that at the peak of their popularity in 2020, they did actually have an effect on sales. So the proportion of black authors on the New York Times bestseller lists increased during this time. And it wasn't just new books, it was mid-list books, back etc. et um, The effect was very short-lived. And it was only for nonfiction books by Black authors writing about the effects of racism. So it was the books on the lists kind of made it onto the New York Times bestseller list, which is not a perfect measure of what's been selling, but that's the public record that we have of what's selling. Um, So on the one hand, we have a rise in the number of books by Black authors on the bestseller list, but it's a very narrow understanding of, I don't know, Black literature generally um and we didn't really see any budge in the proportion of white authors on the fiction bestseller list like that stayed pretty dominant and the same um and so we have these like assumptions that are really pervasive about what presumptions uh, that are on both the part of the publishers and on the part of the readers about which kind of authors write what which kind of books and you could see both in if you look at the The lists that people were publishing that um you know read these books and you know to cure every ill that's ever been in society and then the bestseller lists um you can see that like black authors during this time were really pushed into this educative you know pedagogical function there's nothing wrong with those books they're great books they're important books we need to have those books but it's that these are the books that black authors write They're about these things and they're the ones we're going to read. And they're the ones we're going to commission and they're the ones we're going to review. And that's only one kind of book, a very important kind of book, one that I'm grateful exists. Um, Yes, we should be reading them, but there are heaps of other kinds of books that black authors are writing or should be writing or should be given the opportunity to write. So even then, even my language here is, is so problematic, like given the opportunity to write, like who, who, who am I giving people opportunity? Like that's, that's, Am I allowed to swear? No, uh, um, that's really stuffed up. But like, I, I am. That's the language I'm using. That's the logic at work. You know, given the opportunity to write. So if these these lists just aren't bad in and of themselves, they just demonstrate the logic at work. Where this is the kind of books that people are writing. This is the kind of books that we'll be reviewing. This is the kind of books that we'll be reading. And then once the protest is is over, you know, in in the minds of a lot of people. It's kind of we, we we snap back to business as usual and the only, um, you know, black authors that are on the consistently on the New York Times bestseller list are black celebrity memoirs and Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell and so great, you know, that's kind of shows like a real kind of snap back to a kind of cultural baseline.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as someone who likes a good, like cozy mystery in my downtime, I... The internet, the world, the publishing world presents me with a lot of lists of, as you said, like nonfiction books by Black authors to read, and I have to do a lot more work to find the lists of cozy mysteries by folks of color. And like yeah, that, exactly, that work has been done out there, but it is much less present from mm. the book world than the kinds of lists that you've described. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that it just kind of
0: comes back to you know, I was reading Melanie Bold's research while this is kind of happening and I'm seeing, you know, her research really dive so deeply into the British publishing sector and about how there is like, these authors write these books and these authors write these other books and, and that divide. And then you're just seeing it playing out by, you know, perfectly well-meaning people on the internet who've done nothing wrong and like, you know, have just caught my ire and then, and, then, and, and, and which is, so, sorry to them, but you know, it and it's just part of that kind of perfectly well-meaning work that is kind of meaningless and doesn't really do anything. And making change is hard and it's unsustainable often and without changing these roots, these foundations. yeah, I would love that list though of like cozy mysteries by authors oh, yeah. color because yeah. yeah,, yeah,
1: yeah, I'm working on that. <laughs> um, so then I guess what conclusions? did you come to after all of this research and what do you hope these conclusions will provoke in both the book industry and in your reader audiences?
0: I mean, the conclusion I reached is that there is a logic <laughs> that structures and reinforces racist, you know, the racism that kind of characterizes but it's always characterized the Angl- Anglophone field. Um, and It's in every part of what, what we do. And I really think that until these assumptions are examined and addressed diversity and inclusion efforts on the part of publishers will, publishers that are still run by white executives and white editors, they won't really bring about the change that they want to make. I am a really optimistic person. Um, I like to think, and I I do think that people who are running sort of, diversity inclusion efforts in publishing houses like they do want to see change it's not people aren't consciously blocking out change but change doesn't happen until the foundations change and I don't know what the answer is I don't know what the solution is um but I think a really a really great example of this is I mean this is from Richard Jean So's work um called Cultural Redlining it came out in 2021 I think um and Amazing book and so much like a quantitative research around race and publishing and book culture in the US. And he writes about the time that Toni Morrison was uh, an editor at Random House, as it was called back then. Um, and how in her time as a commissioning editor at Random House, the number of black authors who were published by Random House in fiction, just like swelled, And it was just like a beautiful time. And as soon as Barissa moved on, uh, that just went back to like the, the, the baseline from before she arrived. And it's a, you know, it's a pretty crude measurement. It's, you know, only can tell us part of the picture. But I think that that is such a great example of how the logic is so strong that you can bring a bit of representation in to change it for a bit. But as soon as that effort is kind of undone, or, 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 changes it like an elastic, like it snaps back so quickly and it did almost instantly. Um, and the fate of, you know, publishing should not rest on the shoulders of one person at random, like that, that can't be the system where we've decided on. So I suppose like what I wanted us to do as, as, as researchers, as, as an industry that I care very deeply about is to really examine those systems. And I, and I caught myself before saying, you know, afforded the ability to write or given the opportunity to write X, Y, and Z, like that's just me enacting that logic, you know, in a conversation. So, you know, it it takes a lot to kind of unlearn and I don't know how to, I don't know how to bring about systemic change. That's, that's not my job, but, um, people who do, I don't know. I think that that's something that the the industry really needs and that's kind of what I what I want, but not everyone in the Australian book industry is like happy about the stuff that I've written. They're not happy about the way that I, you know, characterize women's literary prizes. Um, and that's okay. Um, they can like me for other reasons, I suppose.
1: Right. And I mean, we have to, we have to make that conversations happen, even if they're not comfortable.
0: Uh, Oh, they're deeply uncomfortable. And these are things that I grapple with a lot as someone who wants to write about race which is kind of how I got to this this book, man. This research is that um, you know I wanted to write about inequality because I can see it so blatantly, and it took me a couple of years to get to it. But it was like, oh, this is the problem because it, it, we need to be talking about whiteness. It's not about representation; it's about whiteness. And so, um, and you know that is that is uncomfortable. But like anything uncomfortable, like you start talking about it, and after a while, you just like forget that it's uncomfortable, and then you start making other people uncomfortable about it. <laughs> getting that they find it uncomfortable. Um yeah. Which is fine.
1: Yeah. Little steps, little steps. Um it's it gets us somewhere. Um well I've I've taken a fair bit of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love to hear about what you're working on next. If you have any new research projects that are based in this research or anything completely new that you're diving into. Um yeah I
0: am kind of moving away from publishing practice specifically um, but it kind of is rooted in this research I want to look at um, creative networks for authors um, and the role that like institutions play in mediating those networks how authors come together what those kind of individual creative relationships mean for the way we understand book culture and how they kind of, they are or are not generative. And then also, you know, who does and doesn't have access to them. Um, and I'll be coming to New York in September to do some research about um, the city as, as, as a sort of mediating institution as well, and how, you know, the city acts as um, an enabler or a disinhibitor to kind of literary production so I'm kind of looking at um, what authors are doing because I'm kind of really fascinated about what authors do as someone who doesn't really have a creative bone in their body. I'm very fascinated by what they do.
1: Wow. That sounds really, really fascinating. Um, and thank you so much for chatting with me today about all of this. Uh, so, Yeah. Yeah. Just like really, really thought provoking, um, really great ideas to, I hope, have a lot more conversations about. So, once again, my guest today is Alex Dane, author of White Literary Taste Production and Contemporary Book Culture, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network.